Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Good morning, church. How are we doing today? Was it just me or was anybody else mesmerized by how Pastor Donnie's sneakers glow when they're on the stage? Did anybody else catch that or was it just me? I was like, I don't know. It's mesmerizing, Pastor Donnie. Thank you for that. (laughs) You're welcome. Well, church, it is Valentine's Day. Or I'm sorry, it's February. It's not Valentine's Day. Some of you guys freaked out, didn't you? You're like, what? I didn't get anything. It's February. And with February comes Valentine's Day, right? I don't know if you celebrate it or if you don't celebrate it. Um, if you're like my wife and I, we, um, we, we wait until like a week after when there's nobody in the restaurants and the flowers are super cheap and we get all the uh, discount chocolates and then we celebrate Valentine's Day. But maybe you celebrate it, maybe you don't, but uh, Valentine's Day has a very rich history. Uh, I don't know if you know it or not, but I'm going to take us back this morning. I'm kind of a history nerd and so I like to know where things come from, how they got started. And so I want to take you back and I want to talk to you about the origins this morning of Valentine's Day. And there's no, as I was researching this, no definite agreement from scholars on like when Valentine's Day started and, you know, no hard fast, like this is when it started and this was the tradition. But there are some festivals and some saints that have lived throughout history that they kind of attribute the beginnings of Valentine's Day to. And three of those were early Christians named Valentine, of all things. Uh, the Catholic Church recognized three separate individuals with the name Valentine and sainted them in the early church. One of the most well-known of those is the Saint Valentine who defied the orders of the Roman Emperor Claudius II, who outlawed young men from getting married because he believed that single men made better soldiers. So this St. Valentine disobeyed the law and continued to perform weddings in secrets for the young couples. Everybody say, aww. St. Valentine was eventually found out and executed for his crimes. So that's how that story ended. Uh, actually, all these guys named St. Valentine were actually martyrs of the church and sainted. Um, Valentine's Day... Uh, I'm sorry, then there was another festival actually. Well, so here's what the Catholic Church did, and they did this throughout history in different times, but eventually what they decided to do to honor St. Valentine is they honored him with a feast in the middle of February, which most likely was an effort to redeem a pagan holiday, which they do that from time to time in the Catholic Church, or the Catholic Church did that throughout history. Um, There's this this uh, pagan holiday called Lupercilia. And Lupercilia was a fertility celebration in which pagan priests was celebrated in the Roman Empire, would sacrifice goats and then take the goat hides, cut them into strips, dip them in blood, take them out in the streets and slap the women of the town with them, right? I mean, who in the world needs chocolates and roses when you get slapped with a bloody goat hide, am I right? We've come a long way, right? We've come a long way. At the conclusion of the festival, the young single woman would, women of the town would put their names into a big urn in the city's uh, center, and the city's bachelors would draw out names out of the urn for the, for the women, and they'd be paired with that woman for a year, which resulted in a lot of marriages. It's, I mean, they didn't have Match.com, they didn't have, you know, Tinder or anything like that, so this was, that's what they did. They just drew names out of an urn. Um, 
Valentine's Day, however, was continued. It was made official by Pope Galius at the end of the 5th century, and it grew in popularity throughout the Middle Ages, where it became associated with love, and it was celebrated by giving out handmade cards. And then in the early 1900s, Hallmark and other card companies caught on to the holiday and the trend. And today there are an estimated 145 million Valentine's Day cards that are sent during the month of February. And obviously we have the, the uh, celebration that we have today or the holiday that we have today. So the question is, why are we talking about Valentine's Day other than the fact that it's February, right? Well, if I were to be one of those guys on Family Feud who went and grabbed 100 people and he surveyed them and I said, give me one word that you think of when you think of Valentine's Day, the number one answer would be love, right? You guys said it, love. Uh, You know, love is an interesting word in the English language, isn't it? Because in the English language, love, we use it for so many things. And we don't, like, it's, it's indiscriminate. We, we use love to talk about our shoes, and we use love to talk about our clothes, and we use love to talk about our favorite restaurant. We use love to talk about our favorite team or favorite movie, right? But then we'd also use love to talk about the people that are nearest and dearest and closest to us. And it just doesn't seem right when you're talking about picking up these socks from Costco. Yes, I buy my socks at Costco. <laughs> doesn't seem right to, thank you, <laughs> they're super cheap. It doesn't seem right to talk about the socks that we love at Costco, that we love them and that we love the person that we've given our lives to be with for the rest of our lives, does it? It just doesn't seem like it should jive or it doesn't really seem like it should work that way. You know, the Inuit Eskimos have dozens of words for snow. They have words for snow that mean deep, soft snow. They have words for snow that means hard, crusted snow. They have words for powdery snow, and they have words for wet, heavy snow, and they have words for heaved up ice and black ice, and they have dozens of words for ice. Yet, in the English language, one of the most important things that we experience in love, or in life, which is love, we have one word, and it carries the gamut of all these things that we describe. And you might ask yourself, well, okay, Pastor Jared, I get that, but again, why does that matter? Well, it matters because of this. And, you know, when you read in the Bible and you look in verses like 1 John 4, chapter 6, or I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 16, it says, God is love. But what does that really mean? I mean, it's important to know what kind of love that is, right? Is that, is that brotherly love? Is that the love of a parent? Is that the love of a spouse? Or is it a kind of love that's altogether completely different? We don't know, but it's important to know. And, you know, you look at Jesus and he, he commands, when Jesus was asked, like, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? What's the most important thing we can do as believers? He said, the most important thing you can do is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But again, what does that mean? Love can mean so many things in our culture and in our language because, again, we use one word for this whole entire gamut of emotion and feeling and, you know, action. But what does it mean? Well, fortunately, the Greek language has more words for love than just one. In fact, it has four words for love, and this is the language that the New Testament was written in, was Greek, and so... um, we get a better understanding of the types of biblical love as, we t- as we're going to, even in these next four weeks, as we take these four Greek words for love and we just unpack them in the next four weeks in this series. The series is called Love in a Word, and we're going to be taking the four Greek words for love and we're going to be unpacking them and helping us understand what it means and, and even biblically what these words mean in their context and what they were meant for because they have a descriptor, a more descriptive way of, of unpacking love than we did. 
So this morning we're going to, uh, we're going to start because we're going to do one word a week. And so the word for this week, is, the word for the week is, it's eros. The word for the week this week is eros. And we're going to be unpacking eros. And as we unpack it, I want to give you again, kind of the history of the word eros. Eros was actually a Greek god. Eros was a Greek god who was known to have a golden bow and a golden arrow, and he would shoot at uh, mortals and gods alike, and he could make them fall in love with his bow and arrow. Um, Eros later was adopted, you know, Greek mythology was kind of adopted by Romans, and they made it Roman mythology, and in Roman mythology, Eros was renamed to Cupid, the Cupid that you know. So the little baby, the naked little baby with the bow and arrow, that's Eros, okay? Um, But somewhere along the way, Eros in the Greek world became more than just a god. It actually became a descriptor of love. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So the actual definition of Eros is defined as sexual and romantic desire for another person. It's where we actually get the English word erotic from. So To break that down this morning, I want to take you to Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. I've already kind of alluded to it, and I'm going to allude to it actually quite a bit in the sermon this morning, but when Jesus was asked by a teacher of the Old Testament, what is the greatest commandment in the Bible? Jesus answered him in Matthew 22, 37 through 39, and he said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. So did you, you catch it in these verses? He talked about two groups of people that we need to love. Like the most important thing we can do as a believer is to love two groups of people. The first group of people is God or the first, the first group, the first person is God and the second person is each other. And it's interesting as you look back in the Old Testament at the 10 commandments, you'll see that the first three commandments were structured like this to where the three first commandments were basically how do we love God and the last seven commandments were, how do we love each other? You know, a lot of those look like don'ts, right? Don't, don't steal from people. That's how you love them. Don't commit adultery. Don't, you know, covet their stuff. And then with God, it was like, don't go to other gods and, you know, don't have any other, don't use my name in vain. It was those kinds of things. But it's interesting that the, the, the Ten Commandments were structured in the same way that Jesus summed them up in, in a couple of lines. And he said, love God and love people, right? So the question this morning that we're going to explore is how does Eros get put in that context? How do, we, how do we Eros or how do we love one another? And how do we Eros or how do we love God? And that's how we're going to explore Eros today. And so um, the first question then that, that I want to look at is how do we Eros each other? How do we love each other in Eros? And before I delve into that fully, the first thing I have to do is I have to talk about boundaries, the boundaries of Eros. Because obviously when you're talking about romantic and sexual love, you can't just go out giving that to everybody, right? It doesn't really work. We know that. We've heard those sermons. We've read the Bible. We understand that. There are boundaries in Eros. And so what are those boundaries? Because it's a romantic sexual love, uh, according to Ephesians 5.3, it forbids us as Christians from participating in sexual immorality. So the full expression of eros can only be 
in the context of a heterosexual marriage. That's the only way that eros can be expressed as a Christian. So like I said in Ephesians 5.3, it forbids Christians from participating in sexual immorality. I'm not going to read the verse, but that's what it does. So you might be asking yourself, what is sexual immorality? What does that mean? You're going to find that sprinkled all over the New Testament. And what that means is, it's basically, uh, it's the word porneia is the Greek word. And it's where we get our word pornography from. And basically what it means, sexual morality means, is it's any sexual expression outside of heterosexual Marriage, that's what sexual immorality is. That's what we are barred from as Christians. Is it that God's a cosmic killjoy? He doesn't want us to have any fun? No, it's because he knows that if we step outside of those boundaries, all we're gonna have is hurt and pain and it's not gonna go well for us if we, have, if we indulge in eros outside of those binds, okay? So that's, that's sexual immorality. Then if you look at Matthew 19, verse five, it says this, for a man will leave his father and mother and will be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. And if you look at that word for wife in the Greek, it's gune. And gune means, means a woman of any age. And so what it's saying is, it's saying a man will leave his father and mother and be united to a woman and the two will become one flesh. So again, the boundaries of eros are heterosexual marriage. The Bible makes it very, very clear. There's nothing that can be expressed outside of that. Okay, so once we get that established and we get that um, understood, then we can move on and we can understand, well, if we know what Eros can't do or what we, how we can't express it, so how, how can we express it? Well, um, what's interesting about Eros is this, is it's, the word actually is never found in the Bible, but the practice of Eros is found throughout the Bible and most thoroughly and most explicitly in the Old Testament book of the Song of Solomon. And in the Song of Solomon, so what the Song of Solomon is, is it's a collection of love letters from the king, one of the Israeli kings, the greatest Israeli king of all time when they were at the peak and the height of their power. His name was Solomon. And uh, it's, a it's a bunch of collections of love letters between him and his new bride. And so they go back and forth. And I mean, it's like, it's like reading someone's love letters is basically what it is. Um, but the practice of Eros is so blatant in there that you just can't miss it. And I love that about the Bible. It doesn't shy away from hard things. It doesn't shy away from love. and It doesn't shy away from what some people might not want to talk about. It's just amazing like that. But there's something interesting in the Song of Solomon. You know, as we look at it, there's three times in the Song of Solomon where his young bride is writing a letter and she's writing to the daughters of Jerusalem, which basically are the maidens or the virgins of Jerusalem, the young women of Jerusalem. And here's what she says. She's, she makes this interesting uh, this interesting observation or gives us interesting advice. She says, don't awaken love until the time is right. Don't awaken love until the time is right. Now, obviously, when it comes to, to uh, the sexual part of Eros, awakening love before it's right is going to cause a lot of damage. So when is, when is the sexual part of Eros, when is that right? Well, that's, that's right when there's a ring, when there's vows exchanged, when there's a service, when there's a, a signing of the, the marriage license. That's when it's okay to awaken Eros love in a relationship in, in sexually. But... And obviously we know if that's awakened too soon, it leads to a lot of issues. But there's also this part of Eros that's not just the sexual love, but it's the romantic love. And so the question is, even in, even in romantic love, is like, is there a time when romantic love should be awakened in a Christian's life? Is there a time when that kind of love should be expressed from one to another one? Well, obviously the answer is yes, but the hard part is this, because the hard part is, 
In our culture that we live in, how do we get into relationships, romantic relationships? Basically, most of it starts with physical attraction, right? You see someone, you're like, wow, they're looking good. And then, you know, you just, you kind of go and you, you see if there's any interest on their end. They see if there's interest on your end. If there's interest, then, you know, somebody makes a move and says, hey, should, should we date? Yeah, let's do it. And then you just kind of jump in. And it's just like you jump in with, with your lives. And not like in a sexual way, but you, you, you jump in like with your emotions, right? And you just date. Well, I want to tell you something. I want to give you some advice, and we're going to take the advice of this young bride of Solomon from the Song of Solomon, and I'm going to say this to you this morning. Don't awaken romantic love until the time is right. What do I mean by that, and why, and why is that so dangerous when we jump into a romantic relationship when, it's, when the time isn't right? Well, I've always suspected this, but... Until I did, and honestly, it didn't take me long to find the research on this, but I've always suspected this, that when people are in love, they just get really stupid, really stupid, um, and they make really bad decisions. I've always suspected it. I've seen it, obviously, but I'm like, there's got to be some kind of research on the brain that talks about what happens when we get into this, what we call like the in-love experience or this romantic, you know, this Twitter-pated, you know, if you're into Bambi, you know, Twitter-pated or super in-love experience. Like, there's something that happens there, and here's what I found, and like I said, it took me like one Google search and, and I had a hit. There's a 2015 article from Harvard Medical School and it says this. I'm going to read this to you. In addition to positive feelings that romance brings, love also deactivates the neural pathway responsible for negative emotions, such as fear and social judgment. These positive and negative feelings involve two neurological pathways. The one linked with positive emotions connects the prefrontal cortex to the nucleus accumbens, while the other, which is linked with negative emotions, connects the nucleus accumbens to the amygdala. When, when we're engaged in romantic love, the neural machinery responsible for making critical assessments of other people includes assessments of, uh, or including assessments of those with whom we are romantically involved shuts down. Okay, did you catch that? Your brain gets stupid when you get in love. Your ability to look at somebody and make rational decisions about them, the person that you're in love with, them, with basically is non-existent. You're, you're basically mentally impaired. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I say a huge amen to that because uh, Malachi, you may not be here if mom's judgment was sound when she was dating me, okay? <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, that you shut our brains down once in a while so that, uh, you know, I, so that my kids can be born. <laughs> but, but what's interesting about that is like, and you probably have seen that in your life where you've had people that, you know, they, uh, they, you have a friend that you really like and they're just a good person, they've got good judgment, good character, and they get involved with someone and you're like, what? What are you doing with that person? Don't you see how crazy, you know, don't you see like they're a person of questionable character and, you know, they're just polar opposite people. Have you ever seen that in your life? And you're like, how did, how, you know, why would you date that person? And everybody around them is telling them it's a bad idea and they're coming up with reasons why it's a good idea. And you've probably seen that. It's, it's like there's an actual brain function that happens. And so in the Song of Solomon, she says, don't awaken love until it's time. And here's the crazy part, because that's not the only thing, honestly, going on physiologically in your brain. That's not the only thing that's working against you. Here's, here's what else is working against you. Not only your decision-making is impaired, but your reward centers. I, it, late, uh, earlier on in this article, I didn't take this part because I didn't want to read all of it, but uh, to you. 
but I'm going to summarize it. It says, essentially what happens is it says your reward centers that give you dopamine are working overtime so much uh, so that this article compares it to being intoxicated with alcohol or being high on cocaine when you're in love, right? So not only are you mentally impaired, but you're also high when you're doing this. <laughs> Tell me what kind of person can make good rational decisions when they're mentally impaired and high, right? <laughs> Nobody can do that. But that's how your brain is physiologically reacting when you're in this in love, um, when you're in this in love state. So this morning, for those of you in this place who are not married, for those of you in this place who um, are not in a, a relationship, or maybe you're in a relationship but you haven't committed yet, or maybe you're just in that place where you're just anybody who's single and is ever interested in being in a relationship, I want to give you some advice this morning because before you go jumping into a relationship emotion first, you don't want to awaken love when it's not right. And so how do you know when it's right? Because obviously there are times when it's absolutely right, otherwise none of us would be here, okay? You've, there's those times. So how do we get into those? What, what, do we, what should we be looking for? Well, there's a few things, and I want to just kind of give you some, some basic wisdom this morning in that. So when you're looking, for, you're looking at someone as a potential, you're looking at someone saying, I like them, I like the way they look, I like, you know, I think they might be a good one for, a good person for a relationship to get into. There's a few things that I want to throw at you that you should consider. Number one, um, does that person love Jesus more than anything? Do they love Jesus more than anything? If they don't love Jesus more than anything, then you don't get in that relationship, period. You, you, missionary dating works one out of every 10,000 times, okay? You're not going to just get into a relationship and then bring that person to Jesus and get them to change. It might happen, might happen, but the chances are pretty slim. Usually what happens is it goes the other way. And they kind of cause you to slide into, you know, just apathy about the church and about the Lord, about your relationship with them. So make sure they love Jesus more than anything. Number two, the fruit of the Spirit should be coming from their lives. So if you're looking at that person and you're assessing a potential person, you want to see things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things should be coming from their life. If you're getting involved with someone and you start to see that, hey, they're not very kind when we're out and about to other people, then that might be a good indication that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is not in play in their lives. Because it's really easy for someone, you know, and I, I realize on this day and age we go on, a lot of people get their relationships online, and I think that's fine. But, you know, you could go on Christian Mingle and you could, you know, it's easy to throw something on your profile that says you're a Christian, but... When you're with someone and you're watching them try to walk it out and they don't have the fruit of the Spirit, it's a lot harder to walk out the fruit of the Spirit than it is to put I'm a Christian on my profile, right? And so you want to look for that. You want to see, do they have the fruit of the Spirit? Do they have joy in their life? Do they have peace in their life? If not, then you probably don't want to get into a relationship or let your love be awakened at that time. Number three, this relationship, they should push you toward the Lord. You know, when you're with them, they should challenge you and they should push you to God and you should push each other and encourage each other in the Lord. That's just being good brothers and sisters in Christ, but also romantic partners should be pushing you toward the Lord. Fourthly, and this isn't something you should look for in them, but this is just good advice. Listen to the people that are closest to you, okay? Remember, you're mentally impaired and high. You don't have good judgment, right? <laughs> But the people around you are in their right minds, okay? The people around you, they, they can see clearly. So lean on the people in your life that you trust the most. Teenagers, please. I know you guys are all over this place. Teenagers, please. Yeah. I know that you don't think your parents know anything at this point in time in your life. Um, 
and I get that, okay, I've been there too, but listen to me. They love you more than anybody else in your life and they know you better than anybody else in your life. They have good, sound advice. So when you're thinking about getting into a relationship, ask your parents, bring them on board, get them to be part of your team, get them in your corner so that they can tell you when things are looking a little wonky or things are a little bit off about the person that you're interested in. And that goes for, that goes just go for teenagers, but that goes for everybody as well. And then I didn't put this one down, but actually the fifth one I thought of as I was, as, as I was preparing this morning, as I was going through this is, you know, you bring, pray about it. <laughs> Obviously, the Lord has amazing plans for your life. He loves you. He's not going to steer you wrong. You should always pray about who that person is and pray, God, is this okay? Is this yes or is this a no? Um, if you want a great story about that sometime, ask Megan. Man, she, she said, God, I want Pastor Donnie, if he's the one, I want him to like be wearing a backward hat. Or no, what was it? Like he, she had like... Um, a black button-down shirt. She wanted him to have a... Bl- she wanted to have him a black button-down shirt, khaki pants, and she said, God, if he's the one, I want him to show up in that outfit, and he did. I mean, wow, <laughs> right? Um, but that's okay. Ask God. He wants you to know. He's not going to hide his will from you in that. So ask the Lord. So take, those, take that advice this morning. Don't awaken love, and don't just jump into a relationship emotion first. Have clear eyes. And then once you've found a person who meets those criteria, you're attracted to them, there's something there, they're into you, you're into them, then go ahead and jump in and just let your emotions go. And for crying out loud, enjoy the in-love experience because God gave us the in-love experience and it is awesome. I mean, you can even see it, not just in the Christian world, but you can see it in the world at large, right? I mean, how many songs on the radio do you hear that are written about being in love? How many uh, poems and books have been written about being in love? How many movies and TV shows and plays have been centered around love stories? Or if they're not centered around love stories, there's usually a love story within their plot somewhere that you can find. I mean, it is an amazing thing to be in love. It's incredible. Song of Solomon, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. I mean, he, Solomon just, you can see how much he's just in love with his wife. And he says this. He says, you are beautiful, my darling, beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. It's amazing, isn't it? Where are my single guys in here? Is Aiden, Aiden, are you in here somewhere? Is Aiden? Sam, where are you at? You're always good for, is Sam in here for me this morning? Where is Sam? Oh, he's not here. Is he? Sam, where are you? Oh, hi, Sam. Sam. Here's what you're going to do, okay? You see her, right? And you just go up to her and you just put your hand on her shoulder and you say, girl, your hair falls in waves like flocks of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. (laughs) Sam, every time, okay? It worked for Solomon, it'll work for you, okay? My Gen Z friends would say Solomon's got riz, right? (laughs) Romantic love is the way that God created us and it should be celebrated and exercised, not just when you're dating, but it should be celebrated and it should be exercised in your marriages as well. Sometimes we call it the passion in a relationship, the romance in a relationship, the spark in a relationship. And unfortunately what happens is we start off that way, but those emotions, after a while they subside, right? Because it's an emotional thing and it's, like I said, a biological, physiological thing. Usually they say about six months to 18 months after your marriage, those emotions kind of fade. But here's the thing, they're not gone forever. 
You know what I mean? You, you just got to work a little bit harder to get them back and to find them. And so if you're in that place where maybe you've been married for a while and, you know, life has happened and you just, you, you just don't, I mean, you're just in that place where you're just kind of ships passing in the night with your spouse, take an opportunity, take some time and invest in your marriage. Because if you invest and you start to connect again emotionally, I guarantee you, you're going to notice that spark's going to come back. And those emotions that you thought maybe were long gone will start to well up within you and you'll be in love You'll find yourself in love with each other again. Just like I said, it takes a little more work when you've been married a little while, but it's still there and it can still happen. And it should be a part of our relationship because it's a whole lot of fun to be in love with your spouse. So if you, if you are in that place and maybe you need some help, I mean, we're going to have a marriage conference here in a couple of months that you're going to want to check out. And there's other resources out there that we can point you to. Um, if you just want to throw that spark back in your relationship, I think it's just incredibly important to have that. You know, one of the cool things in my life is before my, my wife and I were dating, she had found some home videos from her grandpa um, who had shot some home videos. I mean, this was way back in the day. And it was kind of cool to watch those home videos. And he had the camera and he was narrating through the camera. And one of the things that I just, it stuck out to me as we we're watching these home videos is he would always, he would always let the camera like linger, not like in a weird way, but he'd like let the camera linger on his wife. And he would say, oh, there she is. Isn't she beautiful? Isn't she gorgeous? You know, and at this time, they're probably in their late 30s, you know, 40s. They'd had, they have had kids running around. And, but he was still just in love with her. And I think that just hit me. Like, he, he still loves her. He still has, he like, he looks at her and he's like, girl, your, your hair's like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. <laughs> he just loved her. So that's the romantic love of Eros in our relationships. Let's talk quickly about Eros as sexual love. And here's the thing I love about, again, going back to the Song of Solomon, it celebrates sex within marriage. And it celebrates it in a pretty graphic way uh, in marriage, which is great. You know, I love that the Bible doesn't shy away from these things because it's part of the human experience and God speaks to it. Amen? The, the unfortunate thing is sex in our culture has become abused. It's been perverted, which is really kind of led us. I mean, it's, it's led, you know, you can see it all through the word of God. It's been abused and perverted. God, Satan took this great gift that God gave us and he perverted it and he abused it. And so all throughout scripture, you see where there has to be prohibitions to what not to do and, and the, the don'ts when it comes to sex. And it needs to happen because it's been so perverse. And even today, Obviously, in our culture, it's perverse and it's abused. And so we, as a church, end up talking a lot about the negatives when it comes to sex. And we should because we need to because it addresses what's going on in the culture. But sometimes we do that and we miss the pendulum on the other side where we don't talk about the positive aspects of this amazing gift that God's given us, which is eros, which is sexual love inside of a marriage. It's pretty incredible. Pretty amazing. And so this morning, I just want to kind of take a look at that. And, and if you don't think that God created sex or he made sex to be amazing in our, our marriage, I want to give you three kind of ideas or reasons or proofs in the Bible as to why he did that. Number one, um, the first commandment, do you, do you know the first commandment that God gave his people was to have sex? That was the very first thing that he commanded Adam and Eve. I'll prove it to you. Genesis one twenty eight. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Be fruitful and multiply. He wasn't talking about doing math, okay? <laughs> be fruitful and multiply. He said, go and, and fill the earth with kids, procreate, you know? I look around, and, and here's the thing about this command. This command, um, it still stands today. 
We got a lot of amazing people in this church. We got a lot of awesome kids in this church. I'd love to see more awesome kids in this church. So if you're on the fence about having kids, here's a command from the Lord. Be fruitful, multiply. Do it. We love kids, okay? Procreation is one of those reasons that God gave us sex. It was, one of the, it was the first command that he gave to Adam and Eve. But sex isn't just about procreation. It's also something that God gave us to help manage temptation in our lives. 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul says, Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourself more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan will not be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Gives us a way to manage physical temptation. Now, I'm going to say that, but I say that this with a caveat because sometimes this verse gets abused by people in, in marriages and they demand things from their partners um, and they take from their partners and they do it in very selfish ways and they use this verse and they weaponize it for their own selfish pleasure and selfish desire. That's not okay and that's not what this verse is saying. It's talking about managing temptation, but it also talks about, that's also in the context of mutual submission to each other. Isn't that interesting? We don't hear about the mutual submission part. You just hear about the temptation part. So I don't want you to clobber your spouse over the head with that verse, but at the same time, it does help manage temptation. It helps us manage this physical temptation because God gave us these, these bodies, and these bodies have physical desires and wants and needs, and sex satisfies those needs and keeps us from you know, displaying sin in our life through that. Number three, probably my favorite one, it's for enjoyment, pleasure, and fun. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 talks about sexuality and marriage as fulfilling and captivating. Amen. Song of Solomon celebrates it in a graphic way, like I talked about, the married sexual experience. You know, it was meant for fun. It really was. It meant for husband and wives to grow closer together, connect together. It should be had within marriages. It makes marriages better when there's an actual or an active sex life. And I'm going to spare you the biological terms this morning, but there's a part of the female anatomy that has one function, and that is sexual pleasure. That's the only reason God put it on the female body. That's it. That's the only reason. And so if God created the body, which we know he did, he knew that it would be for pleasure and that's what it was meant for. So that was one of the purposes of eros as sexual love. Well, we talked about what eros looks like between us as individuals, as married couples, as those in relationships. But now let's turn around and talk about, because remember we talked about loving one another as ourselves, but it also talked about loving God. Let's talk about eros in a relationship with God. You might be saying to yourself, Pastor Jared, how in the world does romantic sexual love translate to our relationship with God? Well, let's talk about it. Throughout the scripture, there's this theme of Israel, God's people and the church, which basically, I'll just say it this way, God's people, being like a bride. In the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea was told by God to do something really unique. See, at this time, the nation of Israel that Hosea, Hosea prophesied to was very rich and they had a lot of influence coming from the outside. And with that influence and that trade that came from the outside, there was a lot of gods that came with these other nations and cultures. And so Israel began to worship other gods and they began to sacrifice to other gods. And so God told Hosea to do something really interesting. He said, Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And so he did. He went and married a prostitute. And what happened was they had, they had children for a while. They had a good relationship. And then eventually Hosea started stepping out 
I'm sorry, Gomer, his wife, uh, started stepping out. This prostitute started stepping out on him and started, you know, having affairs and hanging out and going with other guys and putting herself back into prostitution. So much so that the very last time that Hosea, we see in the scripture that Hosea goes to get her, he actually has to pay because she was in some kind of debt, some kind of sex slavery where he had to, he had to buy her back um, from, from whoever she was indebted to to be his wife again. But God would say, Hosea, go get her. Hosea, go get her. Hosea, go get her. Hosea. Why did God do that? Well, the answer is in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, and here's what it says. Go show your love. To, this is God talking to Hosea. Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves Israel, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. I didn't do any, any checking on the sacred raisin cakes. I don't know what that's about. But Israel was prostituting themselves to other gods. They were unfaithful. God's people, his bride, and God, God pictured it like this, like, like he was a husband and Israel or God's people were his wife. And what was happening was his wife was stepping out on him. His wife was going and prostituting herself to other gods and, and going to other gods and having an affairs, so to speak, with other gods. And, and God was like, it was breaking his heart and he wanted to help the, the people of, of Israel understand. And so he asked Hosea to go marry a prostitute who he knew was gonna go cheat on him because he wanted the people to understand what his relationship with them was like and how it broke his heart when they did that. Jesus in the New Testament calls the church his bride. In the book of Revelation, it culminates with the wedding of Jesus Christ to the bride, which is the church. Man, what an amazing day that's gonna be. And there's gonna be a marriage supper of the Lamb that's gonna be amazing, but it's the ultimate culmination of history where Jesus gets to marry his bride, gets to be with his bride. Euros love, Eros love, he's crazy about his bride. And if you don't believe that God's crazy about us, look in Zechariah 2.8. He calls us the apple of his eye. In Isaiah 49.16, he says, he has our names inscribed, tattooed on the palm of his hands. In Zephaniah 3.17, it says he delights in us and he sings songs over us. God is crazy about you. Max Licato said, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, it, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. Face it, friends, he is crazy about you. God is crazy in love with you. He has that desire, that arrow's desire for his people and for you, every single one of you, because it's not just about a people, but it's about you as an individual. He's running after you and he desires to have your heart more than he desires anything in the world. And he has gone to extravagant lengths, giving the most incredible gift that he could give his only son, Jesus Christ, so that he could be with us. Man, if that is not your Eros love, I don't know what is. If that isn't someone who's crazy in love and is doing crazy things so that they can be with the person they love, I don't know what is. I don't know how many of you remember it, but um, maybe you, uh, you, if you were ever in the dating uh, phase and you are just in that in love experience where you would just kind of do anything, no matter how crazy it was, and I think I've probably told this story before, but it bears repeating. When I was dating my wife, I was living three hours away in, in Minnesota, and she was in South Dakota, and I was a youth pastor at that time. I was making $100 a week, baby. I was rolling in it, you know? I didn't have a lot of money, um, but dude, I, I never once looked at my bank account. I never once cared how much money I had. I didn't care how much money it was gonna cost me. 
me. Every single chance I get, I would hop in that 91 Honda Accord and I would make my way south three hours and I would take her out for dinner and I would spend money and I would come back. It didn't matter because I was so in love. All I wanted to do was be with her. I'm not a morning person, but one morning I woke up and uh, the host home that she was in, I woke up at six in the morning and I started making her breakfast and the host came out and said, what in the world are you doing? You know, it's six o'clock in the morning. I'm like, I'm making breakfast for my girl. You know, I was just, I just loved her and I would do anything to be with her. That is Eros love and that is what God has for us. But my question is for you today, do you have that kind of love for him? Because that's our expression to him. You know, when we say it's become a cliche almost in evangelical churches now, but we say it all the time. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. We say it all the time, right? There is no better example of that than Eros love. And that's what it's all about. Do you have that kind of relationship where you're just crazy about God? Maybe you remember being in love and maybe you're in that in love phase and you've dated and like you have so many thoughts about that person going through your head, you think you're going crazy. Like every morning, the first person that you think of when you wake up is them and the last thing you think about before you go to bed is them and they're on your mind and they're on your heart all day. I should text them, I should call them, I wonder if they're thinking about me and as you're working and doing your things, your mind's just kind of daydreaming about that person and your next encounter and seeing them and hanging out and what you're gonna do and you wanna connect with them all day long you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been in that state? Are you in that state with the Lord right now? Because that's what he's asking from us. He says this, Revelation 3.20. I've already told you that God's crazy about you, but I'm going to prove it one more time. Revelation 3.20. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and they with me. He is standing at the door of your heart and he's just knocking. Is your heart on fire for him? Are you passionate about your relationship with him? Or is your relationship with God just a list of things you check off because you know you should? Is it just one of those things where you're like, I checked off the church box, I'm good. I'm gonna put God away in his little box until next week and then I'll take him out. Or maybe if I'm really good, I'll come to church on Wednesday night because I'm super, super spiritual and I'll check that off my box. Or maybe I just, you know, I'm doing my, I'm really good, I'm really good, I'm gonna do my devotions in the morning, I'm gonna check that off my box. I'm gonna spend my 15 minutes in prayer, I'm gonna check that off my box and then put that in your box and just never think about him the rest of the day. That's, guys, that's just a list of rules. That's legalism. That's just a discipline. I've heard it said that passion is a poor substitute, our discipline is a poor substitute for passion. And I think it's true. Maybe at one time you had that kind of relationship with the Lord that you were just on fire and all you could think about was him and all you wanted to do was just do whatever he wanted you to do and you couldn't just wait till your next prayer time where you could connect with him and, and spend time with him. But maybe it just grew cold. Maybe the, the cares and concerns and the worries of the world just got to you and you, know, you started finding yourself just eventually kind of falling out of love with the Lord. And all of a sudden, you're just kind of chasing money or you're chasing vacations or you're chasing the next thing that you're going to buy on Amazon or you're excited about the next part of your house that you're going to remodel or you're excited about the next hunt that you're going to go on. What has your heart? Because I'll tell you this, whatever has your heart has your money, it has your time, it has your talent. Look at your life. What are you spending those things on? Because whatever you're spending those things on, that's what has your heart. Jesus wants your heart. God wants to have that kind of relationship with you where you're crazy about him because, man, he has not stopped being crazy about you from before you were born. He is so into you. He's so excited to be a part of your life. And here's the thing. The only thing holding him back is us. 
That's the only thing that's holding us back. And so this morning we got just a few minutes left today and I'm, I'm mostly done, but I want to I end today by asking you that question again. How is your relationship with the Lord? If you look at the Lord like, a, like you would look at a dating relationship, does it look the same? Are you acting the same? Is your mind and your heart in the same place it would be as if you were completely in love with someone and they were the object of your desire? Because, man, I'll tell you what, a lot of Christians, or a lot of times Christians get told that life is boring or they get, or, or some Christians will say even, you know, life is boring because we don't, are not allowed to do the things of the world. But I'll tell you what, guys, they're not living an, an adventure with Jesus in a relationship because he wants to sweep you off your feet and take you places you've never dreamed of if you will let him and if you will jump in with both feet. So this morning, again, I'm just going to ask you that question, are you where you want to be? With Jesus, Do you have that Eros love for him? He has it for you. He's just waiting for you to say yes. So this morning as we uh, end in prayer, I'm just going to kind of ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you're in this place this morning, and, and you know, I'm mostly I'm talking to those of you that already know Jesus and you're in a relationship with him. If you're in this place this morning and you're just saying, man, I just, my life has kind of grown cold. I don't, I don't have that burning passion for the Lord like I used to, but I want to I wanna rekindle it. Man, let me tell you today, the first step is this. It's like any other relationship, you know? If you want to be in a relationship, if you want to get serious, you make a commitment to that person. When it comes to a husband or a wife, you put a ring on their finger, and that's a, that's a symbol of commitment that, hey, I'm, I'm putting skin in the game. I'm in this for the long haul. With Jesus this morning, we're going to start by just making a commitment. And so that commitment's going to look like this. I'm going to ask you in a couple of seconds here with every head bowed and every eye closed. I want you to just raise your hand if you say that's you. And then we're going to pray a prayer of commitment to the Lord. And that's going to be the start. It's not going to be the end all be all, but it's going to be the start of a rekindling of a romance between you and, and the Lord. So if you're in this place this morning, you say, man, Pastor Jeremiah, my passion for the Lord has, has dwindled and I want to rekindle it. I want that flame and that spark back. I want you to raise your hand if you're willing to, to say, yes, that's me. And I'm willing to, to pray that prayer with you, Pastor Jared. Around this place, go ahead and raise your hand if that's you. And again, I'm talking to believers. I'm not talking to non-believers this morning. Thank you. Lots of hands going up. Lots of hands. Go ahead and put your hands down. I'm going to just lead us in a prayer of commitment. And again, this isn't a salvation prayer necessarily. It's a prayer of commitment to the Lord to rekindle that romance with him, that eros love, that let him be the object and desire of your heart. So as I pray that today, I mean, you can all go ahead and pray this with me. But those of you that raise your hands, you know, it's, you got to mean it in your heart. It's not magic words or anything like that. It's just, it's just a, a way, a template for you to be able to put in your passion and your heart into this. So let's, let's you guys go ahead and repeat after me. Jesus. Forgive me. I've let other things come in. And my passions dwindled. Lord, restart that spark. I'm making a commitment to you to walk in your direction and abandon my path. Be the object of my desire. Help me to continue to live for you. 100% full out from here on out. Father, I thank you for each and every person in this room. Lord, I pray, God, for those in this place that just need a rekindling of that spark in relationship. God, I pray you bring it to them. 
Father God, I pray, Lord Jesus, that this would be the beginning of something incredible for them. That, Lord, once they get on that path of really understanding what relationship means and, and what it means that you're crazy for them and they can be crazy for you, God, take them in amazing places. God, places they never dreamed of. God, places they never thought they would go because they're so into you, God, that it doesn't matter what you say or where you ask them to go or what you ask them to do, that there's, their answer is always yes to you. Father, for all of us, Lord God, let us guard ourselves against taking you out of the number one seat of our hearts. And Lord, put you where you belong, right in the middle of our desire. We love you so much, Jesus, and it's in your holy name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. Have an amazing day. We will see you Wednesday. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.